Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Sarah Freeman. She is an assistant professor of neurobiology in the biology department at Utah State University. She studies the neurobiology of strong social bonds. Last year, during the height of the pandemic, her mother died. And Sarah Freeman wrote recently about science and grief and love in Utah State Magazine in an article titled Love and Loss During a Pandemic. She joins us for the hour uh, today. Uh, Sarah Freeman, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you uh, being on with us. Uh, let's uh, preview something else right at the beginning here. Maybe we get to talk about this a little later in the hour as well. Um, you're organizing a series of events here at USU, right, uh, surrounding the a virtual screening of the documentary film Picture a Scientist. Uh, tell us first what Picture a Scientist is. Yes, this is a documentary film that came out last year that um, kind of showcases a lot of the different issues that women in uh, science, technology, engineering, and math uh, professional fields can face, such as discrimination, um, harassment, inequality in various kinds of forms. And so the filmmakers featured a few different scientists in the film and talked about their experiences, and I just thought that it might be really interesting jumping-off point to have a conversation here at Utah State about what we're doing well and what we're not doing very well and how we might be able to come up with some solutions. Uh, so there'll be uh, a virtual screening, uh, right, uh, March 5th through 7th, and then a panel discussion. Tell us briefly about yes. this. Yeah, so the given that it's in a virtual format, um, obviously we can't have an uh, auditorium packed full of, of students and community members uh, due to the pandemic. So we're going to be doing this virtually. And the way that we do that is you, you need to register um, by March 2nd at midnight, and then we will send all of the registered attendees' uh, email addresses to the filmmakers, and they will set up a virtual screening room so you'll get a link to the film that you can watch on your own time over the weekend. And then the following Monday, um, which is International Women's Day, we are going to have a panel discussion with a few local scholars as well as one of the filmmakers about the film and any questions that any of the registered attendees um, send our way. Yeah, sounds very interesting. So March uh, 5th through 7th for the virtual screening, March 8th for the panel discussion. Uh, how do people register? Where do they go? There's a website. So um, it is on the biology department website, biology, um, let's see, I actually don't know the whole yeah. URL by heart, <laughs> but um, there's a link on the uh, website for the event, and it's been um, hopefully uh, advertised um, fairly widely, so yeah, and I, I I've been getting to it fairly easily by just uh, uh, in my search engine putting "picture a scientist in USU." So yeah, yeah, wonderful. Uh, yeah, well, excellent. Um, well, that's uh, coming up. Uh, UPR is one of the sponsors, and happy to do that as well. So uh, loved your article here in Utah State Magazine. By the way, you can get to this at utahstatemagazine.usu.edu. Uh, you begin this, uh, I'll just quote this, wandering through the world of masked faces beyond my home feels like I'm constantly being subjected to the reading the mind and the eyes test. What, what is that? <laughs> so this is a, a psychological test that's used in some um, research labs where you show people only the picture of the eye region of a human face, um, and that human face has various emotions. Maybe it's an angry face, so you might see a furrowed brow, or you might see raised eyebrows, um, but you only see the eye region. And so 
Um, some some emotions are easier to distinguish from other than others. Um, some of them, you know, confusion and anger might be a little bit uh, tricky. And so it's a way to assess in um, an experimental population how how good are these individuals at sort of um, assessing the emotional states of others. Yeah, and it's. I mean, th- I think we've all experienced this I- even without the mask, right? And even perhaps without. Uh being on the autism uh, uh, spectrum, um, as you write here, to, trying to parse out, was that comment judgmental, sarcastic? We, you know, it, it's not just the words, right? Or even just the tone of voice. It's We, we look for mm-hmm. a lot of different cues. Yeah, social social cognition is more complex than I think we, um, we realize. I mean, we take for granted the ability to just, you know, sail through life and be able to interpret others' feelings. And, um, you know, indiv- individuals on the spectrum don't always have as easy of a time doing that. Uh, by the way, it's, it's kind of a, a, a sidebar here. Um, I was talking to some friends the other day uh, whose son was born around March. And so for his entire life, much of his interaction has been with people who are masked up. Mm-hmm. And and they they were commenting that he he's very good at reading eyes, right? I guess he's 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 had he's had to do that. Um uh, I don't know whether that a uh, whole generation of babies, whether that will affect their development. Yeah, I, that's that's not my area of expertise, but I, I do I do know children are very resilient. And so I'm sure there'll be a, a big wave of research trying to evaluate that question. But um, I, I will opt on the side of optimism. Right. right. Yes. Uh, that, yeah, that's probably good. And as they say, as the parents say, he, he's he's doing pretty good. Um, good. So... Um, you, uh, your research, I believe, will uh, you know as as you go along may contribute to. You say there's there's right now um, n- n- no uh, medication which would would help with uh, the I guess the the social interaction part of autism. Yeah, so the it's it's tricky. There are some um, approved medications out there that can help with certain. Um, features of autism and other types of, of psychiatric disorders that might be sort of difficult to treat because the symptoms are, you know, very broad and variable, but specifically targeting the, the sort of social cognitive um, difficulties that face individuals with autism, there's no, there's no targeted treatment for that at the moment. Yeah. So uh, tell us a bit about, what, uh, about your research. What, uh, what do you study? Yeah, so I study the hormone oxytocin. Um, I also study uh, a very similar hormone called vasopressin. Both of these hormones are synthesized in your brain. They circulate through your body and and act at certain target organs, including other places in your brain. Um, And they have a a few different functions outside of the central nervous system, but I'm mostly interested in their actions within the brain and how their actions can modulate various aspects of social behavior. So most of my research is actually focused on um, characterizing and visualizing and finding the receptors for these hormones. So in biological systems where you have a, a signaling molecule like a hormone, um, its, its action it occurs when it binds to a receptor that's very specific for that particular molecule. And so I've developed some different techniques to be able to visualize the locations of those hormones. And what that allows us to do is understand what parts of the brain are sensitive to these hormones. And so then we can infer, based on our 
you know, general neuroscience knowledge of the functions of those parts of the brain, um, what these hormones are doing. So what are the neural substrates that are responsible for these social actions of these hormones? And these, uh, these hormones, uh, you write, are critical for the formation and maintenance of strong social bonds. Uh, how so? Yeah, so um, this uh, originally came out of some research, um, at, actually now several decades ago, um, looking at these little rodents called prairie voles. So um, I was a trainee in the lab of Dr. Larry Young. Um, he was able to sort of extend this work and, and go in to look at a lot of these neural mechanisms. But the basics are um, prairie voles, which some folks may be familiar with, are um, generally considered to be agricultural pests. They live in burrows, and they eat the root systems out from lots of different kinds of cash crops. And so most people, when they think of voles, uh, don't really think of them as some sort of interesting um, animal model for, for the understanding of behavior. They usually think of them as something to eradicate. <laughs> and so what's interesting about prairie voles is that they form monogamous attachment relationships, um, not unlike the um, sort of... Uh, I don't want to say love, that's a little hand-wavy, but the, the bonds that we feel as, as humans in, uh, in adult uh, relationship bonds. And so what we can do as scientists is go in and study the brains and hormones and behavior of monogamous species like the prairie vole to find out what's different about their brain, what's unique about the brains of these animals that are capable of forming these really strong, long-lasting, selective social bonds. And, and how does that make them... Um, you know, what, what drives their behavior and what makes them different. And so I've been able to um, train in that environment and then kind of take that work and apply it to other systems and try to better understand, you know, the targets of, the, of potentially in the human brain that we can, um, you know, study to try to figure out what's underlying the human capacity to form um, social bonds, you know, family bonds, friendships, you know, all sorts of kinds of, of strong social attachments. Yeah, obvious, uh, obvious applications for, for this kind of research, very important. Um, uh, you apparently, I'm reading here, uh, study human brain tissue. This is post-mortem. I do. Yeah, I do. I, um, I went through a lot of applications uh, a few years ago to um, apply for and was eventually awarded um, some human, post-mortem human brain tissue that was donated to the uh, National Institutes of Health um, neurobiobank. It's a, a tissue bank where uh, individuals can donate their brains to science. And it's quite an honor and a privilege to be able to do this work. Um, it's, it's just really a, really a wonderful opportunity to investigate um, what, what's going on in human brain tissue. What does it look like? How does it compare to other species? How does it compare between um, individuals who have had autism while they were alive compared to unaffected individuals? You know, are there differences or not? Um, it's a it's a really big opportunity. Um, I was interested in reading uh, on your website, uh, sarahmfreeman.com, um, that you have studied, maybe continue to study the. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Coppery till monkey, TT monkey. Yeah, TT. Yeah, the co coppery TT monkey. Um, yeah, so this is a non-human primate. They're um, small tree-dwelling uh, monkeys that live in South America. And there is a uh, research colony of them in California at the California National Primate Center where I did my postdoctoral work. Um, this was under the supervision of Dr. Karen Bales. And they've been studying these guys for similar reasons as the uh, prairie voles. You know, they're monogamous. They form these strong attachments. 
they actually have a family structure very similar to uh, human families, um, sort of the traditional human family. Um, there's a lot of fathering behavior involved. Um, they often have um, offspring from previous years will stick around and help raise the younger siblings. Um, so it's a really awesome uh, primate model that's you know, closer in relationship to humans than, say, uh, a rodent um, that also allows us to ask similar questions and see you know, what's conserved across different classes of mammals and what might be different between uh, you know, primates and rodents. And then I understand I'm reading here um, use a non-invasive technique to track uh, these monkeys' uh, gaze direction. Yeah, so we, um, we, we make sure that we do the work with these, these non-human primates with, um, you know, very high uh, standards of welfare. So no, no major, you know, invasive techniques or anything. And so one of the ways that we can study their social cognition and their sort of behavioral interest in uh, social stimuli is by showing them a, a computer screen, basically. Um, and we have what's called an eye tracker, so um, a set of hardware that can actually track the um, uh, locations of what they're looking at. So how long do they fixate on something? Um, how, you know, how, how, how interested are they in that, that photo or that video? Um, it's, a, it's a really fascinating uh, technique, and it's actually used quite a lot in, in human uh, neurocognitive research as well. Uh, so uh, moving back to the, the rodents, I want to just quote a passage from the article here. Um, you, uh, you say, uh, I'll just read this. The uh, region's highest in oxytocin, talking about the rodents' brains, uh, receptors overlap primarily with circuits that process olfactory signals from the nose. It appears these animals have evolved so that oxytocin is acting in brain regions that process incoming information from the sense organ primarily used to navigate their social environmental environments. Uh, so, you know, very, very important, right? This illustrates that for them, this is their primary intake. And, uh, and so mm-hmm. it's connected with the uh, reception of oxytocin. And I, I guess uh, applying that, extrapolating that to, to sociality, social bonds? Oh, yeah. So uh, the, the interesting thing for me with this is the, the sort of comparative differences between rodents and primates. So the rodent brain has, um, you know, several areas, or at least the prairieville brain has several areas that are very enriched in oxytocin receptor expression. So these are regions that... Um, you know, respond to circulating levels of oxytocin or released oxytocin in the brain um, very strongly. And those areas are areas of the brain that we know process, um, you know, smells and things from the olfactory system. And so if you think about a prairie vole you know, wandering through its environment, m- most prairie voles, you know, they look, they look the same. They're not necessarily recognizing one another based on their, you know, their faces <laughs> or what they, what they look like. Um, and so the way that they recognize one another is in, in, their, in the way they smell. Um, certain uh, urinary proteins and other kinds of things that they can, um, you know, investigate and sniff and then identify, oh, this is someone I've met before or um, this is a novel individual or, or whatnot. But in, uh, in, the, in primates, we are, we're much more visual. Um, we use other, other kinds of signals as well, um, you know, sounds of voices or in, in you know, wild primates, their vocalization calls. Um, some of them are scent marking as well, so olfaction is, is still important for some species of primates. But um, for humans, you know, we, we walk through the world and we see faces and, 
And that's often where that sort of, you know, individual recognition happens. And so I was interested in trying to compare where the oxytocin is acting in primate brains more broadly um, and how that compares to the to rodent brains. And what I found was that oxytocin receptors tend to overlap more in regions of the primate brain that are important for uh, visual attention and sustained visual attention to uh, stimuli in the visual environment. So um, I'm assuming the way that oxytocin influences uh, strong social bonds is that oxytocin influences behavior, right? Yeah, so the, the, this, the, the mechanisms of this are, are actively under research. This is something that's just been um, really expanding in, in the last 10 years or so with new technologies and things. But the, the sort of basic understanding in the field at the moment is that oxytocin is acting in parts of the brain that are often dopaminergic. So these are regions of the brain that express dopamine, so another neurotransmitter, that's very often associated with um, euphoria, addiction, um, you know, reward. And so if oxytocin is kind of adding a social stamp to these reward systems of the brain, then what, you're, what you can kind of think about when you think about a social bond is that you're, you're in a way forming this kind of rewarding, addicting relationship with a specific set of social stimuli. Um, I think it's a little, you know, probably inaccurate to say that we're, you know, becoming addicted to other people, <laughs> but uh, a lot of those same mechanisms in the brain that underlie reward and sort of motivated behaviors are um, also sensitive to oxytocin. And so this overlap in the systems of the brain is what's thought to underlie the formation of these really strong bonds. Well, maybe I'll add, uh, I was going to ask this sometime in the hour. I'll ask it right now. Um, uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, one of uh, one of these emotions, right, that we identify in humans anyway is love, right? Valentine's mm-hmm. Day is coming up. Uh, we're talking about the hormones that uh, promote behaviors which, uh, which then instigate the strong social bonds. I'm sure you've been asked this before as a, as a scientist who studies this. Um, we like to have mystery surrounding love, right? We, we, it, romance is the word, right? We want it to be romantic. <laughs> it, <laughs> how much of this is hormones and, and how much not? Is, I guess I'll, I'll phrase it this way, is love just hormones? Yeah, that's a great question. We, um, we used to talk about this quite a lot in lab meetings when I was in graduate school. You know, does, does understanding the science behind it take the romance out of love? And, and I disagree. I mean, I might be biased. I think that... Um, you know, science and, and inquiry and, and anything that sort of brings new information to light is one of the biggest gifts and, and thrills in my life. And so when I learn that there's some amazingly complicated neurobiological process underlying, you know, some aspects of my behavior, it's, it's, it's thrilling and amazing and, and just adds like another level of complexity to, you know, what, what otherwise would maybe be underappreciated. So it doesn't reduce the the mystery of the romance for you. Not for me. I don't think so. Yeah. I think I think it's I think it's fascinating to be able to study these things and I think, you know, a lot of times um people are are kind of overwhelmed and don't understand, you know, with with situations like unrequited love. Why do I feel this way? You know, why why can't, you know, why or, or with a breakup or something, you know, that that they, you know, they wish they could feel differently. And so I think if you understand it in the context of a 
um, biological process, it kind of, you know, lends a little bit of, um, you know, support to the idea that, that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a process in your body and it's okay and it'll, you know, it, it'll, it'll work its way through. Is there, I don't know, is there extra understanding that, uh, you know, I guess it could be uh, comforting in, in a way, you know, if you're feeling the loss, uh, uh, to say, okay, at least part of this is, is a chemical reaction. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and to, to kind of flip it back to the, the, you know, not breakup side, but the, that, you know, euphoria that you have when you first are falling in love with a new partner, you're, you know, just crushing on someone and it's just this incredibly motivating feeling, you know, you still have to go seek out stimuli to keep that going. (laughs) You still need to, you know, see that person or, you know, reach for their hand and hold their hand. Like there are still stimuli that, that sort of feed forward and allow those biological processes to continue. So it's not necessarily, you know, just happening in your brain. Like you, you have to kind of, you know, keep, keep feeding that process and keep you know, making sure that it's, um, you know, that it's, that it's alive and then it's, that it's growing. Mm-hmm. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to uh, get into, I'll just read this and we'll get into it after a break. Uh, this is uh, Sarah Freeman uh, quoted in her article in uh, Utah State Magazine. Um, Our own visual social primate brain is being exhausted by the COVID-19 pandemic-related challenges of having to navigate our world with fewer facial cues to guide our interactions. But that assumes that you're regularly leaving your house, and so there's a whole other level of problems uh, there as well. We'll get into your personal story, very moving, uh, talking about uh, the loss of your mother during the pandemic as well. Uh, That's still to come. We're talking with uh, Sarah Freeman. She is an assistant uh, professor of neurobiology at Utah State University. Uh, We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we have with us for the hour, uh, Dr. Sarah Freeman. She's an assistant professor of neurobiology at Utah State uh, University. Um, and uh, she uh, wrote a very interesting, moving article in the latest uh, edition of Utah State Magazine. You can find that at utahstatemagazine.usu.edu. It's titled Love and Loss During a Pandemic. Uh, the first part of the program, we talked about her research uh, dealing with oxytocin. And uh, quoting Dr. Freeman here, uh, um, researchers have found in recent years that oxytocin is critical for the formation and maintenance of strong social bonds and for the social and cognitive abilities that allow us to interact with others in an, uh, in expected ways. Uh, so Dr. Freeman goes on, uh, I quoted this before the break, our own visual social primate brain is being exhausted by COVID-19 pandemic-related challenges uh, of having to navigate our world with fewer facial cues to guide our interactions. Uh, so talk about that. That's uh, You said earlier on that... Uh, Wandering through a world of mass faces uh, reminded you of reading the mind in the eyes test. We talked about that. Uh, this, so we have a lot fewer cues. Yeah, I mean, we're we're you know generally if if we're even interacting with other people, um, we're doing it with masks on, and so we don't get to have you know over half of the face of of um, signals to tell us. You know, are they are they with us? Are they confused? Are they you know, smiling under there. Um, and so not only is it more challenging and more exhausting and potentially more anxiety-ridden um, to, to have a simple conversation with someone else, it's also uh, missing those, you know, rewarding smiles that we would see if we were interacting with folks without our faces covered. And so, 
you know, while it is the, you know, easiest and most important thing we can do to protect ourselves and others from this pandemic, it's also just making our day-to-day lives extremely socially draining, um, at least in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, certainly would agree with that, uh, just based on my anecdotal, uh, you know, experience. Um, what about uh, all of these Zoom interactions? Uh, is uh, I, I take it from reading your article that uh, oxytocin's released much more with, with touch, right, with, with, with physical interaction. Yeah, so t- touch for sure. Um, eye contact releases oxytocin in your brain as well, um, which is also something that is a bit strained in a in a Zoom call. You know, we we're we're trying to manage multiple different faces. We can't make eye contact with any of them. You know, mutual eye contact between two people is nearly impossible on a Zoom call. Um, you know, in order to give the look like you're making eye contact, you have to stare right into the camera on your webcam on your computer. And so you're not getting the gaze back from someone else. And so I think it it is just another layer of very subtle uh, social cognitive challenges that we just are dealing with every day. And, you know, whether that's, you know, a contributor to the you know, quote-unquote Zoom fatigue that we're all talking about these days, Um, you know, perhaps. uh, Maybe it's just hours and hours of screen time that we would normally, um, you know, be spending in in contact and conference rooms and and physical, uh, you know, presence of other people. So, yeah, I don't (laughs) – I'm I'm sure there are going to be social psychologists out there studying, you know, Zoom fatigue and and, uh, things like that in the future. Uh, Yeah, uh, I'm sure. Um... It just occurred to me, you know, we're we're talking here by telephone, we're talking on the radio, and people are consuming this uh, only, uh, you know, with their ears. Um, is there, uh, you know, what, what what's what are the factors there in terms of uh, of, of bonding? Uh, you know, we've all had experiences of talking over the telephone with loved ones. Uh, and that there's sure, there's got to sure. be something there, but but there's only one stimulus there. It's, it's the voice. Yes. Yeah, so oxytocin is also important for the um, sort of, you know, appropriate, I don't know if that's the right word, but appropriate processing of auditory information as well, um, especially in animals that use auditory signals um, as one of their primary methods of communication. So um, I'm actually really interested in in digging into this more. Um, I've I've recently started working with the uh, coyotes down at the Millville Predator Center, which is part of the USDA um, uh, National Wildlife Research Center. Um, they have a, a number of, of captive coyotes living down there, and their research is primarily on uh, human-predator conflict. But they've been really interested in letting me study them for their social behavior because you may not realize um, coyotes also form long-term monogamous social bonds. And they, as many people who live in the, that side of our valley, um, uh, Cache Valley, might realize or might, might hear them um, howling and, and vocalizing um, quite, quite a bit. And so, you know, in order to, to study and understand the way that, that hormones and biology in the brain are, are mediating certain behaviors, you have to ask the question in the right animal model. And so prairie voles might not be the right animal to ask, you know, how do these hormones and how does behavior uh, in the brain, how are they all related to influence um, auditory signals? But with these coyotes, we, we can do that. And so um, we've been trying to get a research program up and running, um, thanks to my postdoc who just started last year, Dr. Lexi Toronto, and a new Ph.D. student, Caroline Long, who just started uh, last month. 
Um, they're going to be working down there to try to figure out what about a, a very complex um, social cognitive organism like a canid, like a canine. Um, you know, they, they're very visually vigilant, um, similar to, to primates. They use their visual systems to navigate their social worlds, but they also vocalize and howl, and they also scent mark. And so we're really interested to try to get into some of the mechanisms that might be driving those complex behaviors to see how these hormones might be working in, a, in an organism similar to a coyote. Interesting. So, uh, how would you set up such an experiment? Uh, with, with, you know, yeah, it's good. Very good question. So um, at the moment, um, we are just piloting some new technologies to, to put collars on them. So again, non, non-invasive work. We um, put a collar there, you know, that's very lightweight. They don't, they don't seem to be bothered by it. Um, and the, the two pair mates, the male and female pair, both wear these collars. And every time they come in close proximity to one another, it, it it um, you know like pings that event and records the duration and frequency and time of that event. So, at the moment, we're just trying to get some baseline measures of what their social behavior looks like in their you know home enclosures, and then we're going to um, try to get into um, some recordings of their uh, vocalizations and the timing of that, and then also kind of looking at um, you know what how do they respond to different kinds of odors and and uh, you know other other social signals that might come from. Um, the odors of others. So, you know, urine scents and, um, you know, overmarking, scent marking behavior as well. Yeah, very interesting. We'll, we'll be curious to see what happens there. Um, so you write in the, the article, what impact is this social disconnection, you know, the mask on and, and not leaving the house, what impact is the social disconnection having on our brains? So what, uh, what do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. I think neuroscientists all over the world are probably wondering the same thing. <laughs> I mean, we know we know that that isolation and, and loneliness have have big impacts on our mood, and we know that mood is um, you know mediated in in a large part by the neurotransmitter systems of the brain. And so, my my sort of I don't know, you know, I it's, I don't study serotonin or or dopamine directly, but my idea as as a you know generalist neuroscientist would be that a lot of these hormones and neurotransmitters that we think of that modulate mood, um, so like I said, serotonin, um, dopamine, even maybe some of the uh, endogenous opioids in the brain are are very likely to be uh, sort of underexpressed um, or or reduced. I would think, but um, you know it's very hard to sort of establish that kind of work. Um, you know, we can't really do any sort of invasive work to try to figure that out in the human brain. And even if we wanted to get blood samples and look at how, um, you know, circulating levels in our bloodstream of these, um, you know, other kinds of, of signaling hormones, um, a lot of human research has been stopped by the pandemic. So you can't even have uh, volunteers come into your lab and do um, any sort of sampling at the moment. So human neuroscientists are actually being very negatively affected by this pandemic um, some labs have started opening again, but a lot of, of human subjects' research has still stopped. Yeah, it's something I think we we probably don't focus on. It's not not in the popular yeah. press. Um, so you go on to say that this uh, uh, one particularly painful challenge is the lack of social connection during major life events. Of course, births, weddings, and death of a loved one, and and you've experienced uh, that. You're, you you lost your mother in early May during the height of the the pandemic. I did, uh, and this was not uh, this was not COVID related. Uh, she had battled uh, breast cancer, right? Yes, yes. 
so tell us, uh, tell us about this. And by the way, thank you for sharing this personal experience as it relates to your science in this article and, and with us here. Um, so, uh, you, you say, you know, some, you know, a, a wedding, you could postpone it <laughs> or you could adjust it. With a death, obviously, um, that, that, that's it. And you've got to make some painful decisions about uh, yeah. memorial services was, and other yeah, things. Yeah, it was hard. I mean, we, you know, even though she had been battling breast cancer for five and a half years, um, it, it still happened pretty quickly. And so, you know, her, her health declined very fast. And, and we did have to make some, some decisions afterwards about, you know, do we have a memorial now? Do we, you know, do we get people together that are, that are in Atlanta? I, I ended up, um, in the article, I describe how we, my husband and I and, and our dog got in the car intending to drive to Atlanta because we thought we might have time and, and we would be able to be there and, and be together for a little while. But um, I ended up having to detour and get on a plane out of Denver to fly there as fast as I could. But um, I didn't make it in time, which is just heartbreaking. Um, but in the sort of aftermath, um, when it's, it was just my dad, my brother, my sister-in-law, and my husband and I uh, in the house, you know, reeling from this, what, do we, you know, we can't open our home up to our friends and neighbors. We can't really, you know, accept. Uh, it, it was really hard. It was, it was it, you know, it was, it was nice to have that very dedicated time as just us as a nuclear family, but it was also really hard to, tr- you know, turn away uh, you know, community members, family members, people who wanted to help and, and wanted to grieve with us. And so we eventually made the difficult decision um, to just postpone a memorial. You know, we didn't, we have family all over the country. Um, my mom was one of the most friendly and social people you'd ever meet. And so she had friends all over as well. Um, and so it would, it just didn't, it didn't make sense to try to say, all right, we're doing it, you know, come if you want to or come if you feel safe, you know, that we didn't want to put that burden on on the strong community of loved ones that were that were reeling from this news. So, um so, so what is lost when uh, we can't do that? It, there there is something important, right, about as you write it, uh, mourning death side by side. Uh, in, yeah, you know, including being, physical being touch, together. hugs, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, talk a little bit about that. That's uh, you know, and, and many, many thousands of families are, are going through this during this pandemic. Yeah, hundreds of thousands. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. You know, I think the question kind of might get at. You know, I don't want to be too philosophical, but kind of the the human condition of you know sharing meals and and laughter and tears. You know, there's there's a a quote that I remember from you know something in high school that's like shared love is is double but shared sorrow is half and and I think there's there's some real truth to that that you know being together and sharing stories and feeling understood and just having that connection really you know takes some of the sting out of something as as difficult as grief. And this is compounded, you make a reference to this in the article, uh, this is compounded by the fact that during the pandemic, hundreds of thousands of people have died essentially alone. Yeah, it's, it's, it breaks my heart. I mean, we were very lucky in a way, um, I don't know if luck is really the right word, but we were fortunate that, um, our, that mom, mom was at home, um, so we didn't have to have the um, you know, added I don't want to know. I don't know if trauma is the right word, but the the 
the, the challenge of having a loved one be isolated in the ICU, and I, I know that there are likely many listeners out there who have been through that this year, and I, I, my heart goes out to them. So how do you, I guess I'll just ask you personally, uh, how do you, how have you mourned your your mother? It, uh, it In many instances, it has not been able to be, you know, physically with people. Yeah, it's, you know, the we, we stayed in Atlanta for about a month, um, and so that was a nice long period to be together. We did a lot of unearthing of, of things, you know, that had been tucked away in cabinets and closets and basements, and I think the you know, the, the, the memories that that brought up was actually, you know, very cathartic. I mean, we were doing a lot of, you know, do we keep this? Do we throw that away? Um, my brother and I actually made a joke. We were, uh, um, you know, my mom collected, not collected, she, she kept all sorts of stuff, you know, childhood stuffed animals and, and things that I had thought she would have thrown away a long time ago. And as we're unearthing all these things, which is, you know, hard work, um, my brother made this joke and he was like, oh, no. Uh, the the protector of all of our trash is gone. (laughs) We have to finally decide what we want to keep and what we want to throw away. And so it was actually a really kind of heartwarming process to be, you know, going through these boxes of things from our childhood together. And and there were a lot of them, and a lot of them was from my childhood because my my brother stayed in Atlanta, and so he's been able over the years to, you know, oh, no, Mom, you can throw that out, or oh, no, I don't need that. But I've been traveling all over for my work, and so I haven't been home. And so most of the, the, um, you know, immediate sort of grieving period was actually spent reminiscing and, and looking back over a lot of stuff. And so it, in a way, it was, it was really healing. Um, it, obviously, it's, it's a long road, and, um, you know, grief is not linear. Um, months down the road, you find yourself right back at the beginning again. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, been, it's been a process. We've had a lot of loved ones reach out, um, lots of phone calls and, and um, you know, Zoom calls and connections with people in the meantime. And, and one of the things that I think has helped me get through it is how many folks have reached out and, and thanked us for waiting to have a memorial um, so that we can do it safely. Because I know I've heard a lot of stories from people who have gone to funerals and memorial services in the last year where you can't hold hands or you can't hug each other um, and you have to wear masks and it's just somehow even more painful to be, you know, celebrating and remembering the life of someone when you can't even take your mouth off or your your mask off and and share a meal, you know, and sit down together. And and I and so I I don't know, I I think while it might be extending our grief to not have the memorial, I, I think it's the best possible route forward for our particular group of people. Um, I look forward to when we can actually do it, but I don't know. You know, hopefully it's in the closer future. Yeah, not, yeah, you know, certainly. Yeah, I hope that for you and, and for the, the rest of the families who are waiting as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to quote you from your article. Um, you say, My husband wisely reminds me during my lowest points that the depth of my grief is a direct reflection of the intensity of the love that my mother and I shared. That's your husband's a very wise man. <laughs> you can say that again. Uh, so that that is, that is a truth, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think I think it's it's nice. It's a nice sentiment, and it's true. And I think it really it really helps me when I'm struggling to sort of you know flip the narrative and and just reflect on how wonderful our relationship was. You know, I was really lucky. I know there are a lot of people out there that have 
strained relationships with their with their mothers or their parents um, or siblings for that matter, and that you know that 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 can be really hard. And I feel really lucky that um, I was so close to her. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm very glad there are a couple of photos of your mother in this story. People can go to utahstatemagazine.usu.edu. One with uh, with her enjoying your looks like your wedding day with you. And yeah. and then there's another uh, very nice uh, photograph uh, of her. She she uh, she seems delightful. Um, so uh, let's bring this back to uh, to I guess biology, neurobiology, what you what you study. Um, so loss of of these social bonds, right? Loss of someone you've bonded with, whether you're talking about animals or humans, um, is that that would have a biological component, I would think. Yeah, so I, I myself, in my own research program, have, have yet to, to really dig into this, but there are others that have started to, to sort of flip the focus, and instead of looking at the mechanisms that are important for the formation of these social bonds and the maintenance of these social bonds, um, have, beginning, have begun to look at, at what happens with bond disruptions, so, so loss, loss of social bonds. There's actually a, a friend and colleague of mine in science, um, Dr. Zoe Donaldson, over at um, uh, University of Colorado Boulder, and she's, she's doing this in prairie voles. So she's looking at what happens in the brain when you lose your pair mate. Um, and this is new research that's, that's just begun in the last few years. She's also an assistant professor. So... Um, a little bit farther along in her career than I am, but still, you know, early career faculty. And I'm just thrilled to see how um, the techniques that she's using to study the brain, um, how, how it tells us something about what happens when, when, a, when a bond is, is lost. Because um, I think there is a, a lot of, you know, people report feeling disoriented and, 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 and sort of confused and, you know, all of, obviously the sorrow and the, and the sadness as well. And so these are are you know mood changes, but they're bigger than that. They're 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 habit changes. They're routines that change. And I think all of these kinds of things, these you know day to day norms and the 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 expectation that that you have come to be, you know be um, you, that you get you get in a routine. And I think when those get disrupted, there's all sorts of things in your brain that are going to change. Um, we'll, uh, we'll take a break next and come back with just a, a short segment at the end here, but, uh, you give some good advice at the end of the article. You say, uh, for those of you who can call your mom, tell her you love her, just may give her the burst of oxytocin she needs to get through the day. That's, <laughs> that's excellent. Uh, good advice for all of us. Um, so, um, we'll, uh, take a, a quick break here. We'll come back with more. Uh, our guest for the hour is, uh, Sarah Freeman. She is Assistant Professor of Neurobiology at Utah State University. We'll have more following this. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Sarah Freeman, Assistant Professor of Neurobiology at Utah State University. And we've been talking about her uh, uh, very interesting article uh, in the latest edition of Utah State Magazine. You can find that at utahstatemagazine.usu.edu. It's titled Love and Loss During a Pandemic. We've been talking about her research dealing with uh, social bonding and oxytocin. Uh, so Sarah Freeman, I'd, I really wanted to talk about this, so let's take a couple of minutes with this. So in your, at your website, sarahmfreeman.com, you t- say that you've designed a couple of interdisciplinary upper-level seminar courses during graduate school. One of those is titled The Coevolution of Dogs and Humans. Uh, fascinated. Tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, 
Yeah, so this was actually kind of a pipe dream uh, class that I designed in graduate school as a part of a um, teaching fellowship application where we had to create um, two full syllabi for um, classes that weren't currently represented in the curriculum of that university. And so um, I love dogs. I think they're amazing. And I've always thought it was really interesting to study um, the sort of relationships between dogs and humans. I think it opens up a lot of different avenues um, for inter- interdisciplinary uh, educational uh, questions. So anthropology, um, cognitive neuroscience, all, all sorts of things. How, how did they, how, you know, how did the domestication process work? How, how, do, they, how do they form bonds with us? <laughs> I mean, they, they have evolved from wolves, and wolves have a monogamous social structure as well. They have an alpha male and female pair. And so, you know, have, have we over the course of domestication sort of co-opted the pair bonding circuitry of the wolf brain to create a domesticated subspecies that actually transfers that attachment capacity to us? Yeah, that's, that is very, very interesting. Um... And, uh, of course, that could be a topic for another hour. Maybe we'll do that at some point. <laughs> um, uh, at the end of the program, here we just have uh, three or four minutes. I uh, wanted to uh, have you put in another plug for the events that are coming up uh, surrounding the uh, film, documentary film, Picture a Scientist. Tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, so Picture a Scientist is a documentary film that came out last year that um, highlights and discusses the various kinds of challenges and issues that face women in science, technology, engineering, and math fields. So this is um, often inequality, in unequal distribution of resources or salary, harassment, discrimination, and things like that. And so um, the film is going to be able to be viewed by registered attendees over a weekend viewing period, March uh, 5th to 7th. So um, you can register online at the event webpage, and then um, we will send you a link to access the documentary film. And then we're hoping that individuals that watch it will send us their questions and and curiosities and and things. And we're going to have a sort of lunch and learn discussion panel um, Monday, March 8th, which is uh, International uh, Women's Day. And we're going to talk um, at noon that day uh, over Zoom in a sort of virtual webinar uh, panel discussion with one of the filmmakers and also three local scholars here at Utah State about, um, you know, what, what, what's, ca- what's happening here, here in our home turf? How can we, um, you know, how can we do better? How can we support women in science? How can we uh, recruit more um, and, and sort of retain them and, and address some of these issues? And so... Um, we're hoping to have a very productive dialogue that will help us uh, grow as an institution and also um, just generally support diversity in science. Uh, excellent. Um, and uh, you can, by the way, you can go to our website, upr.org, and it's on the front page there uh, to get the information, uh, upr.org. Or I just Googled uh, Picture a Scientist USU. You could get to it that way uh, to register. Uh, free, but you need to register. Uh, so just have a couple minutes left. Um, maybe have talked just very briefly about any challenges that you have faced personally uh, being a woman in, in this area. You know, I feel like I've, I've been pretty lucky. I mean, you hear quite a lot of, um, you know, horror stories, so to speak, about um, uh, inequity and harassment and things. And 
Um, I've been very lucky. I've been very supported. Um, I was raised to be a strong, independent woman who is very comfortable, um, you know, speaking her mind and um, not being talked on top of at meetings and things. So I feel like, you know, I, I try to do my best to, to be a role model and just, you know, stand up for myself. But that doesn't always fix the problem. They're, they're very systemic issues at play. So, um, you know, personally, I feel, I feel pretty lucky. I, I, um, I haven't necessarily faced as many, at least, you know, knowingly or directly. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm still early in my career. And so, um, you know, there, there's all sorts of things in the future that I just want to make sure I'm prepared for and that, um, you know, as a, as a role model for others that I'm, you know, standing up for equality and that I'm doing what I can to try to foster productive dialogues and just kind of make sure that, that the next generation of scientists have it better than my generation did. Well, we've been talking with Sarah Freeman. She is an assistant professor of neurobiology at Utah State University, and uh, you can find her at her website, sarahmfreeman.com. You can find her uh, moving article, a very interesting article, at utahstatemagazine.usu.edu. It's in the latest edition of the magazine. It's called Love and Loss During a Pandemic. Sarah Freeman, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate you uh, being on with us. Uh, of course, uh, tomorrow is uh, uh, the program behind the headlines in this hour uh, from KCBW and the Salt Lake Tribune. And I have to bring that to you. Monday, uh, Access Utah, of course, returns. And Utah Poet Laureate Paisley Rectal will join us. Paisley Rectal, of course, is a professor at Utah State Univer- uh, University of Utah as well. Uh, we're going to be addressing the question, how do we properly define cultural appropriation, and is it always wrong? Uh, if we can write in the voice of another, should we? And if so, what questions do we need to consider first? In her new book, Appropriate, a Provocation, uh, Paisley Rectal addresses a young writer to delineate how the idea of cultural appropriation has evolved and perhaps calcified in our political climate. And that's coming up on Monday. Hope you join us then. And uh, thanks for listening today.